My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I talked to Elliot about making interactive puzzles and rotating DMs. If you are interested at all in creating interactive puzzles for your games, this is a very good episode for that. And I have some links to videos from Elliot and how he has done this on Roll20. And I really recommend that you check those out after the episode. Welcome, everybody. Today I have Elliot Rodriguez, the Chief Brand Officer for the Dungeon Society with me. Welcome, Elliot. Hi, thank you for having me. Great to have you. Elliot, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in tabletop role-playing games? Yeah, I actually got started really young. I think I was I was probably like six or seven when I first was introduced to D&D, and this was back in like second edition days in the early 90s. And there was a kid down the street who who had some books and played D&D. And I don't remember much from that time, but I do remember playing for the first time and kind of realizing, kind of coming to the realization that this was an open world and you could kind of do anything. And then I kind of stuck with it. I had friends and some family members that I played with through second edition, through high school. And then and then I kind of dropped off, to be honest. I, I left D&D proper for, for a while and didn't play for probably... Probably about 10 years, actually. I didn't play d and I played some other very similar systems and things like that, but I totally skipped third edition, or excuse me, 3.5 and 4, basically. And then I came back when my kids kind of became old enough to play and came back into D&D to play with them. How old were your kids when you got them started? Yeah, that's a tricky thing. I actually, I, I built myself a path when they were very young. I knew that they couldn't play D&D, they wouldn't really be able to wrap their head around some of the rules at a really young age. So I actually started working with my kids with the idea of kind of role-playing games as kind of bedtime stories. So instead of telling a bedtime story, when my kids were little, we would do, a lot of times it was like Marvel superheroes, right? It would be like, there's a villain and you get to be this character and you get to be this character. And we would I would give them the scenario and say, well, what do you do, Iron Man? Or what do you do, Hulk? And then they would tell. And that was kind of their introduction into the idea of role-playing games. And then and then when they were a little bit older, when they were probably like maybe four or five, I actually built a, a very simple role-playing game system for them that was like three stats and like a couple talents is what we call them. And played that with them for a few years, or really like maybe one or two years, and kind of prep them, prime them for how rules work in those kinds of systems. Right. I've got several kids. So their ages ranged when I got them really into D&D between, I would say, like six and maybe 12, six and 11, somewhere around that age. And and it's great. I love playing with, I, I mean, I love playing with my kids, but I love playing D&D with kids. I think they're the most interesting group of people to play or to run D&D games for. That's awesome. I really need to start the uh, story time thing with my daughter. She's, oh, she's almost four now. So I gotta, I gotta get on that. 
Yeah, it's great. And like I said, my kids were really into superheroes at that age, but whatever they're into, just throw them into it. It's more fun for me than Bedtime Stories was. So, and it's super fun for them. And like I said, it's it's a good primer for kind of how that works. Probably some good improv practice as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's why I say kids. Kids, man, nothing will prepare you to be a, a DM better than playing with kids, whether they're your own kids or running ga- run games for other kids as well. I, I taught very briefly a couple of years ago, uh, like a D&D for beginners class online for kids. And it's just, it is the best prep. It just keeps you on your feet. It teaches you to improvise and it, and it very much teaches you to expect things that you don't plan for because kids will do things you do not plan for. <laughs> Yes, kids are are very unpredictable in what they pick up and and what they decide to do. So Elliot, I found you on TikTok because you had posted a really cool puzzle thing that you put together. Do you want to talk about some of the puzzles and kind of your process for both creating them and, and kind of running them? Yeah, so kind of as a primer, I, I'm a huge fan of puzzles in D&D. And, and when I say that, what I really mean is I'm a huge fan of letting players solve puzzles. I love puzzle solving. That's just like a personal interest of mine. I love solving puzzles. I love riddles and things like that. And so I love to engage my players who enjoy that. Some players don't. Some players want, you know, don't want to deal with puzzles. And that's very important when you're deciding how to implement puzzles in your games. And because if you have a party that's just not interested in puzzle solving in character, then I wouldn't recommend doing that to them. But if you do have a party that is interested in puzzles, it's, it can be super rewarding. Those aha moments that you get from puzzle solving are super fun and they're super rewarding. I feel like they're, they are for the puzzle solvers are very rewarding experiences as players. So unfortunately I, not unfortunately, it's wonderful that I get to play most of my games online, but I play most of my games online. And so I don't have the luxury of being able to like print things out and hand out and cut up pieces of paper and, and kind of prep a physical puzzle for my players to solve. Because I feel like a, a lot of the the sort of negative action to puzzle solving is you read a riddle out loud or you describe a picture and then players kind of are left to solve it and there's nothing to work on. So I like to give puzzles for players to work on. That means usually in person, giving them something to touch, right? Something to look at, something to read, something to fiddle with. But for online games, which like I said, is is mostly what I run these days, that doesn't really work. And there's not really a good system for it that I found for running puzzles online. So what I ended up doing, and I've done this for a few different types of puzzles, but what I ended up doing is just creating interactive puzzles in a virtual tabletop. I use Roll20 as a, as our kind of primary virtual tabletop when I run games. And so I what I did was basically built a, a kind of semi-tactile, virtually tactile, we'll say, puzzle. And that means dials. That means being able to turn dials on a, like a, a decoder ring or or matching up tiles or building a puzzle, an actual image, maybe it's an illustration of a creature or a map or something, and throwing that into Roll20 and let the players actually put it together instead of having them roll and say, okay, you put together the puzzle, letting them move those pieces around and rotate pieces and solve the puzzle. I find that super rewarding. And then on the at the kind of far extreme end is to take all of those different elements 
and then merge them into almost a kind of a, a, a puzzle encounter virtually. So the the most recent, the most elaborate one that I did was a was a wizard's desk that had all sorts of objects and items on it. And then utilizing kind of Roll20's layer, a layering system and some kind of not necessarily features, but almost sort of side effects of how Roll20's system works. You can do neat things like have an image where you have the desk with all these objects, and in this case, a skull. And then you, the players figure out they need to put something in the skull. You move that top layer to the back, and the new layer that's behind it is the same image, but with those objects in the skull's eyes, and they're glowing. And now it's revealed new information in front of you. It's projected images onto the desk. And then that leads you into the next step of the puzzle. And then and then there's physical, like, wooden pieces on the desk that the players get to play around with. And they get to, you know, arrange those and rotate those and move them around and arrange them into images to get to the next phase. So really encouraging that tactile it's, it's not really tactile, but tactile involvement where they're getting to touch things and move things around. I find that is a, a super fun experience for a lot of players. And I will make sure that I include the link to that TikTok video because I think the visual aspect of seeing what's going on is really helpful. But like for the pieces and stuff that they could move around, you just created tokens for so that they could manipulate them. And then kind of watching the the progress on that video as they move kind of to different sections of the puzzle, it almost reminded me of like an escape room. Yep. In a yep. way. That which is just exactly a really cool. Right. Yeah, it was a cool feeling to see that in a in a virtual setting like that in a DD game. Yeah, that I, I'm a fan of escape rooms as well. And for that reason, for the progressive sort of aspect where you you solve one thing or you find something that seems irrelevant and then you get to some place later on in the puzzle solving process or in the escape room process. And then you realize, oh, wait, I recognize this. That's a thing we found five, 10 minutes ago and we didn't think anything of it. Let's go back to that and grab that. I And that's how I like to build my puzzles too, is I like to give pieces that are unusable early so that later on they get that aha they go wait i recognize this and just building in those little moments of of kind of recognition to go i know this is is a great is a great way to do it do you have like when you're sitting down to design something like this do you sit down and kind of write out like things that you want to have happen yeah or how, how do you yeah what does that process look like for actually designing it yeah so it's it's a little bit tricky because I, I I like to I like to work with the 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 tools that I have. And if I was doing this in person, I, I would probably end up doing less mechanically tricky things in terms of things being revealed and kind of magical effects. When you do it virtually, you can have these kind of a, a, a desk changes or like it begins to glow and you can physically rep your or visually I should say represent those things very easily. So depending on how I'm doing that really dictates what I put into it. When I'm doing virtual puzzles like this one, I like to take into account what are these kind of little kind of niche features or, or niche almost kind of side effects of the system that I can play with to to achieve an effect. So one of those is Roll20 has a has a an aura system where you can grab a token and you can say, give this a 20 foot aura thing and it's blue. And what I found out at one point is that the aura of your token is always behind other tokens, but above the background. 
And what that lets you do is it lets you do really fun things like if you lay down an image where there's elements that are transparent. So if I take a, an image and I write or, or really erase from that image a word, and then I take the same image but without that erased word and put it behind on the map layer, and I put that top image on the token layer, when I give, say, a, a party member or, or in the case of this puzzle, I used a, a gem, a token for a gem, I give that gem an aura, and when I move it over that area, what happens is the aura is behind the token that is the top image with the erased word, but it's in front of the map image that's an identical image that doesn't have that erasure on it. So what ends up happening is you end up getting this really cool effect where words suddenly appear as you're moving this token across. It's like it's like the proximity of the gem causes that area to appear. So using those kind of little tools, that's how I build those puzzles. I find, well, what I want to have a token reveal something. So what what can I reveal? And then I'll say, okay, I'm going to have this element of the puzzle be this this reveal piece. And sometimes it's on a on a escape room style encounter, like the one that we're talking about, or sometimes that works on a map too. If you have a battle map and you do the same thing, you erase a portion and have a duplicate on the map layer behind it, you can't tell it's there until your token that has an aura gets close to it. And then things like words appear on the ground or runes appear on the stone that you're standing on. And you can get a lot of just amazing effects. So that determining what tools I have to work with is how I decide what to include and mining any of those new little kind of bugs almost that appear in those systems is, is super rewarding, especially because players aren't expecting it, right? They, if they don't know that this is how the system works, then you can, you shock them by doing this kind of revealing gem that reveals text or stones that have runes suddenly glow when they get close to them. Yeah, that's super immersive from a player standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and for puzzle solving or or puzzle making, that's really what I want to go for. I want it to be very much like an escape room because you know, there there's certain situations I don't think it's appropriate necessarily for every puzzle and or for every player, but I think it's a common refrain we hear in 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 puzzles in D&D that you don't have to make puzzles hard. The, the puzzles shouldn't be difficult. Because if they're too difficult, then it's not fun. So rather than emphasizing a puzzle by making it more difficult, which I think is what some DMs do, they say, I want this puzzle to be important. Or they say very smartly, they say, well, this doesn't, doesn't make sense for this puzzle to be easy. Why would a wizard put a puzzle that's super easy to, to lock away their, their treasures? That doesn't make any sense. It's supposed to be difficult. But what I find is that if, if you make those difficult, players just lose interest or they get frustrated or they feel like they're lost. And then you end up having them roll to solve it, which is fine. Again, depending on the player, that works. But rather than making it just super difficult, what I find is a much better strategy is to layer it, is to give three or four puzzle elements that are very easy. And I, I rely pretty heavily on children's puzzles in fact the one that is the one in that in that puzzle that you saw that one is uses a a basic puzzle a, a picture puzzle like a jigsaw puzzle that you would put together it uses tangrams which if you're not familiar with tangrams they are wooden shapes it's a, a set of seven wooden shapes squares triangles a parallelogram that are they're used very commonly in children's puzzles where it'll show you a picture of something like a boat and then you recreate that boat using the shapes so these are not 
these are not intense puzzles. They're not complicated puzzles. They're just very simple puzzles chained together to feel like a an experience that that you get to spend time on that feels satisfying because if it's too fast then it feels like you just blew past it. And if it's too long or too frustrating, then it feels like you don't want to do it again. But I feel like there's a really good sweet spot in there where you can just have a really good experience when you have puzzles that are not too hard, but that you get to work through steadily. Yeah. I think that's kind of the fun of escape rooms. Like you mentioned is it's, you get a handful of things and like maybe one of them is relevant and then you're slowly right. getting through the different layers and then going back to pieces to keep it engaging. Yep. Yeah. And I always feel like letting players feel like they are, that they're working on something. i give you an example in that puzzle there. You find those tangram pieces. You can access those tangram pieces right off the bat. They're not behind. They're not hidden. They're not anything. They're just there. And so my players, when I ran that puzzle for them, my players picked up those hangers and said, oh, we've got to build a shape. And they started building shapes and they spent a few minutes trying to arrange those. They said, well, these probably fit into a square, which they do. Tangrabs can be that set of shapes can form a square. And they immediately said about like, it's got to be a square. And in some games that would feel like wasted time, right? Because they're not succeeding. They're not progressing the puzzle, but they're but they're physically manipulating or virtually physically manipulating those pieces. And so when they then realize making a square doesn't do anything or they can't get it to be a square, they realize maybe this isn't the thing. Let's go back to something else. And then when they find out what they need to use those squares for, they go, oh, great. We have a ton of practice. We've, we've worked with these before. We know how to use these. And it, it doesn't feel like... It doesn't feel like a red herring. It feels like a natural sort of learning experience of of interacting with these objects. Yeah, so it doesn't become wasted time. It's just right. kind of a memory thing now. For that encounter specifically, about how long does it take players to get through that one? Um, my players, my players got through that one probably, I would say, in about an hour. Now, and that sounds, I know some people... Because I've talked to some people and they say like an hour spent on puzzle solving. And it, it sounds like a lot, but I have to say, if you're if you have players who are really invested in role playing, that time is very well spent. For example, my players noticed that in that puzzle, there's references to animals that are in that image. There's like a label that references one animal and a, a bottle that has a name. And so they thought, oh, we, we need these animals. And they sent an NPC <laughs> to go collect animals. And they had a whole conversation about, okay, what are we going to do with the animals? Do we just need them in here? So while, again, just like with those, those Tangram pieces, that was a, it was not progressive. It didn't, it didn't move the puzzle along. It was a very fun experience. And especially because the end of that puzzle solving, they got through the puzzle and they leave that location. They go, we got it. And the NPC comes back toting three animals and goes, what do you need? What do I do with these? And they go, <laughs> oh, never mind. We don't need them. Never mind. So it's a, really leaning into the, the role play of all that is super fun and letting your players explore, really having the puzzle feel like it's an exploration and not that it's just solving a puzzle. Do you ever offer clues up to them then? Yeah. My standard kind of a policy on that is some players and some players at some times don't, aren't getting something out of a puzzle, right? So, or get stuck or, or get stuck on the wrong path or something happens. So my policy is generally that 
anytime you want a hint, you get a hint. There is because the point of the puzzle is not to is not to stop you from solving it, right? <laughs> I'm not I'm not trying to keep them from solving it. I want them to solve it. And there's a fine line between giving them hints that progress the puzzle solving and spoiling that aha moment. And that is where, and sometimes I'll pre-write those hints, but sometimes there are things that you can't really plan for where players maybe get stuck on some element of a puzzle and then you, you kind of have to lead them off of that. So oftentimes what I'll do is I'll ask a player, I'll say, well, what, what proficiency or what skill do you want to use to try to progress the puzzle? And sometimes it'll, it'll, it'll be as simple as a, a, a history check if I heard of this thing or investigation checks, I want to examine this object. And then I'll throw in clues, clues that maybe didn't exist before. In, in this one, for example, my players were looking around and they just, they 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 found both the necessary clues. They just didn't connect them, kind of, of what to do with them. They found that there were these gemstones that they needed to interact with. And they found this skull that they had that was on the desk, but they were, they, they just missed a piece of text. It was right there in front of them the entire time. It was visible on the page the entire time. And they just kept reading right past it. And so they, they said, well, I want to do, I want to investigate the skull. And I had not written anything to progress the puzzle. If you investigate the skull, there's no, there's nothing in the text of the puzzle that moves them. At least originally there wasn't that would move them along. And when they did that, I said, well, let's get, let's reward that. They're, they're using a skill. They're trying to progress the puzzle. Their player is doing that. Let's reward that. I had them roll. And I'll, to be honest though, I know this is kind of a uh, DM no, no, it's to have people roll when they're going to fail or when there's no chance of failure. I like to have them roll. And unless they really botch it, or even especially if they botch it they, and they get a, a nat one, use that to flavor how they progress rather than saying whether they progress or not. So if they succeed on that, they go, okay, you notice these little indentations or scratch marks on the skull's eyes that indicate that something, something has been put in and taken out of those or something is moved in there, right? Depending on how much information you want to give. And then the players get to have the aha moment. Then they go, aha, I know what should go in there. It's these gems that we have <laughs> because they've been working with those the entire time and they get to have, they get to, they get to solve it, right? You don't give it to them. And then conversely, if they, if they fail that role, if they get a nat one, well, then they, they knock the, that piece of parchment off the, the desk that says the, that phrase and it lands in front of them with those words kind of highlighted in some way. So all of it in service of progressing the puzzle, letting them move on, and then just flavoring it how how it fits the story best. Right. So that role is not a, do you succeed or not? It's really a, trying to think of the right word. It's like a gradient of success or a, a degree right. of success. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. It makes me want to design some sort of a puzzle like that, because I think that that sounds fun. For that map, you have quite a few different kind of pieces of art and mm -hmm. stuff on there. Is that all stuff that you had put together or did you source that from somewhere? Yeah, actually that art is, so that entire puzzle was used using free stock images. I think with the exception of the puzzle that you put together with 16 scraps of parchment from a piece of torn into a, a grid, that was hand-drawn or digitally drawn by me. But everything else in there actually uses free stock photos. I, I I originally, when I sat down, I was like, I want to make this. I started to sketch it out. 
because I had an idea of how I wanted it to look and what the desk looked like. And I started to sketch it out. And then it, because I'm a, I'm an illustrator by kind of by trade that, that that's what I do. And so I thought, let me illustrate this and fully make this kind of cool illustrated puzzle. And then I got a few minutes into it and I went, this is going to be a lot of illustration. Like it's going to be a very long time. And I think probably for future puzzles, I might end up doing that, but I had to run this puzzle in, in, in a few days. And I said, this is not a good, a good a use of my time. Let me cut this together. Let me basically photo bash this, this desk together. And so I went to a free, free stock photo website, grabbed a bunch of these images and, and I should say, made sure that they were good for free commercial use. Always check that when you're using any kind of stock photos and then cut all those different elements, the, the, the skull, the mug, the, the uh, gems, the desk, all that different kind of all those different pieces that go on that puzzle, cut those all together, Photoshop those all together. And then and then have this kind of final final version of the puzzle. The stuff that's on top of those, like there's little illustrations of like a cat or of some some handwriting and things like that. That I'll do on top of that image. I'll, I'll add those little bits. A lot of that stuff is hand drawn, but the the objects on the uh, on the desk those are are kind of photo bashed. I believe you have this map or this encounter available on your Patreon, correct? Yeah, I had posted because I had posted before on TikTok some videos of some puzzles that I made using those individual elements, right? Using some of these like dials or or even that that weird kind of aura feature, that revealing feature. But this was really the the first one where it was t- it tied kind of all of those different things together into kind of a more like you said a more of kind of an escape room experience. And and I posted about that on TikTok and I got such wonderful responses from people <laughs> that I said, all right, well, let me, let me put this out there for people to use for their, their own games. So yes, it is, it's available for free on my Patreon. You don't have to be a patron. It is just, it's available for everybody. And I will make sure to include a link to that specific post as well in the show. Great. Notes. What else do you do on your Patreon? Yeah. So a lot of my Patreon is, is just illustrations. It's drawings of, to be honest, a lot of characters. I love to create characters and whether it's an efficient way to make characters or not, a lot of times I end up drawing those characters first or very early in the process of character creation. So it, it I end up putting lots and lots of character drawings on my Patreon. And then I also release maps. I, I do illustrations of battle maps. In fact, I just put out another one last last week as we're recording a uh, kind of a bridge battle map with a bunch of different variations with a broken bridge and a regular bridge and a, a river underneath or a gorge underneath and things like that so i i post those i don't i'm not a map patreon i don't i don't post new maps every couple weeks that kind of thing so it's it is something that i post but it's definitely more occasional than that and then and then every once in a while on patreon i'll post things like this like this puzzle that that are kind of D&D content, but there are just kind of out there to use for, for people to use however they want. And and, and that's the bulk of, of what I post. I always, I, I kind of tell people when they ask that question about like, what do you put on your Patreon? It's a, it's, a, it's a lot of different things, but generally speaking, it's all focused around illustration and D&D and kind of where those things meet in the middle. Sure. That makes sense. And you also have a Kickstarter. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, we, so I'm the, as you said up top, I'm the chief brand officer for the Dungeon Society. We're a, a group that came together to produce 5e related content. And, and we just recently, we actually launched a Kickstarter for 
a 5e advent calendar a playable 5e advent calendar i will say depending on when this releases or not we uh, we did a kind of a, a release and we are we pulled in our re-releasing so i don't have the exact date it should be coming up in the next couple of weeks but we we will be re-releasing that patreon within the next excuse me that kickstarter within the next couple of weeks but it's called seasons of adventure it's a 5e playable advent calendar so you'll get to open doors like a typical advent calendar and you'll get things like minis there'll be music there's a campaign and kind of a full adventure that you get to play with all unique characters really fun monsters and all of this stuff is unique we have some fantastic well some fantastic people in general working on it but but specifically the artwork we have a fantastic artist named chris hayes who's done work for blizzard and hearthstone and things like that so it's really really high quality stuff and it's and it's just a fantastic product so that that should be relaunching soon that's awesome so i was actually kind of curious about the the minis in that how do you like get those do you have somebody design those and and get those sourced somewhere or what does that look like so those are actually they're they're all unique. They're all unique from from our group. They the artist that I mentioned, Chris Hayes, he created concept art for all these monsters, creatures, and NPCs. And then we brought on a, a sculptor. Her name is Bree Gale, and she's done amazing work. And she has done amazing work on these sculptures as well. So we did all of that in house, and then. And then, of course, manufacturing of those is it was going to be outsourced because we can't print the quantity that we're hoping to produce for this product. But but as far as the from concept to sculpt, that's all done by us. That is cool. Yeah, and there's some fantastic work stuff that I I didn't. There's there's when it comes to D and D monsters, you have these kind of really cool concepts that pop up. One of my favorites that's in that that's in that adventure is a a snowman mimic where it's it looks like a snowman. And it's actually a mimic and it's torso. It kind of reminds me of the old like 80s Ghostbusters toys, if if that rings any bells for anyone. <laughs> but we're like, it's it's torso opens up and, and it's, its head kind of pops off and it's got this big mimic mouth coming out of the middle of the snowman with the kind of classic mimic tongue rolling out of there. But it's a, yeah, it's super cool. And the monsters are super great. You can go check it out. There's there's more information about that on the on the Kickstarter page now. You can look at the what's currently on there and there'll be new stuff going on there as we prep for the relaunch very shortly. And that's, uh, like I said, that's called Seasons of Adventure. Cool. Let's see. All good information. Would you like to talk a little bit about how you prep for your game? Yeah. I usually prep for games pretty heavily, a little bit, almost to my detriment, I would say. I like to write things out, things that I probably don't need to have written out. I think I almost exclusively run homebrew adventures. I've run modules in the past, and those are fine, and, and I think it's no shame in running those. I think that it's not a it's not a badge of honor that, that I run homebrew adventures, but because that's a choice that I've made, it means that there's quite a bit of prep because I'm building everything pretty much from scratch. And I like to write things out in uh, kind of a traditional adventure module format. So even for the the homebrew adventures that I run, I will write out a document, Google Doc, and I'll write out everything. Descriptions, highlight text that gets read to players, skill, skill challenges, and how they, if they roll up... T- 10 or above, they get this. If they get a 15 or above, they get this. If they get a 20 or above, they get this. 
And I like to write all that out. Like I said, that is sometimes not super efficient because it's just, it's time consuming. It is really time consuming. Fortunately, I really enjoy writing them. I, I enjoy the writing process and like mulling over character or, or NPC motivations. And in fact, I had a friend who asked me, one of my players in that, in that game, he asked me, he said, how long does it take you to write these adventures? And what are you doing during that time? And I told him when I'm planning out, especially long-term arcs, I spend by far the most time on a long drive or laying in bed at night or whatever. So anytime where I have a little like downtime and it's quiet and I can kind of think, just thinking about why people do what they do, right? I, I, I want my NPCs to feel like people. I don't want them to feel like it's in a game. So the majority of the time that I spend when I'm planning out these adventures is thinking. It's not actually writing, although that does take up a huge amount of time to write all those things out once I get to where I need to be in terms of the ideas. But I spend a, an awful lot of time just thinking, why do people do things? Why does this person do this thing? And why and how, Why do people react the way they do? I had a I had a villain. I say villain. I had a, a big bad, or at least he was set up as a big bad in a recent kind of arc. It was a multi-adventure arc. And and I didn't have a motivation for him when I when his name was mentioned in the, the, the first time his name came up. It was, he was just an idea of somebody. And then over the course of months, as we get closer to a, an actual reveal and things are kind of happening in the background, that's when I'm thinking of like, why, why does this character do this? Why did he set these things up? Why did he put these elements into place? Why are these people doing what they do? And, and so I spend a lot of time on that. I think it's the most, I, I think for character-based storytelling, I think that is the most important element is why are people doing what they do? Yeah, and that knowing that why also helps you to improvise too when you don't necessarily have to have a ton of things written down about like their responses and stuff because you can just kind of go back to the, well, why, right. what are they trying to do? What's their main goal? And then how does that interact right. with whatever the players are doing? That's exactly right. And I think like in that case with, with that big bad, they were set up to be, for the players to think that they were a big bad. Right. Because they were doing things, they were they were hurting people or they were controlling people, manipulating situations. And and I knew very early on that they weren't a big bad, right? That they were that they were putting these things into place, or maybe I should say they're not a big bad. They were not the big bad that they thought they were, right? They were they were almost this kind of like anti-hero where they're manipulating the situation because they're trying to save people, right? They're trying to do the most good, right? It's like they were saddled with the trolley problem and they made a choice and they said, these other few people have to die so that the world doesn't end. And they made that choice. And so it was really interesting as we progressed based on players' choices and where they went and kind of what they did, having that motivation of like, they no, they want to do good. They're not a bad person. They want the best outcome. And they just did the math. And that's the conclusion they came to. And it may not have been the same conclusion that the players would have come to, but they are, they're wanting to save people. They're not wanting to hurt people. They're wanting to keep people alive. That motivation helped define not only the ultimate interaction that the players had with them, but all the little ways that those things were seeded along the way. And that really helped when they finally, when the players finally get there and realize, oh, got it. Now I kind of get why this seems so weird, why it seems so off that they would do these kind of weird manipulative things. Now it makes sense is that they weren't, they weren't actually just messing with us. They were, they had a goal in mind. Yeah. Just give them that kind of realistic, like you said, that they feel 
alive in that way. Right, absolutely. Um, do you have any advice for new dungeon masters? Run a game. <laughs> no, uh, run a game. That is genuinely the best advice that I can give is watch watch somebody run a game, whether that's in-person play, being a player is is watching somebody run a game, or watch one of the many, many, many live play shows that are out there. Watch somebody, get a recommendation from someone like, hey, what's a good DM, that a good example of a DM to watch? Or, or find out what your players are looking for, right? Play, some players are different, right? If, you're, if you've got a party who's looking for like hack and slash D&D, you're not going to run a game the same way as if you've got you've got players that want to flirt with each other, right? So the, the, the big thing for me is once you've got the experience of watching a DM that you say, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to create that kind of experience. Run a game, run a game because there's no... And preferably run it for children, bring it full circle, <laughs> run a game because it's, it's, I firmly believe that it's one of those things that you, you just get better at by doing it. And unless you're, unless you're investing time in improv classes or, or some form of, of sort, sort of supportive skill uh, building like that, running the game is the best way to do it. I have in my, my current game that, that I'm I'm running, or I should say co-running. We actually, our party, we've got five of us and we rotate, we rotate our DMs. So I'll DM. And when I say that, I mean, we maintain the same party, the same world, the same plots. And I DM, I'll DM an adventure. And then I'll have a, another player steps into the DM seat and runs that adventure. And there's, there's a million little kind of strategies to doing that successfully in terms of like, what do you do with your player character when you're DMing and things like that? And there's, there's a million different ways to make that successful that you kind of have to pay attention to. But what I found in doing that is our players who had not really DM'd before, a couple of them had DM'd maybe once or twice or run several adventures, but half the party had never DM'd before. And one of those ended up loving it one of those players like fell into it the writing of it and the storytelling aspects and just and loved it and and figured out oh this isn't actually that hard i don't need to know the rules that the rules are not the important thing if you've got supportive players who know the rules you don't need to know the all the ins and outs of every rule to play you, you know you need to be able to improvise on your feet, be confident in the in speaking. And then we had I had another player who did it and who did it pretty well, but didn't love it. Isn't isn't in love with doing it, would much rather play. So people are different, but if you're wanting to do it, just do it. Try it. Because you're not ever going to know how it feels to do it or what little bits are successful until you try it. I'm interested in hearing more about the co-DMing yeah. piece of this. Yeah, it's a it is a weird but very fun experience. I have never done this before. We've been running this scene for about about a year, maybe a year and a half. And it was it came out of really it came out of me being kind of burned out because we had run I had been running a pirate campaign for about a year, a little over a year. And then my brother ran a, a, a short, maybe for a couple months, I don't, I don't recall exactly, but ran a, a, a Naruto a kind of based campaign for a little while. And and he got kind of burned out. He, he was struggling with having to run games every week because we, we're weekly players. And so he was struggling to run games every week. And I 
said, well, let me run a, let me run in a kind of a, a module. I ran a, a Ninja Turtles, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles kind of flavored Waterdeep Dragon Heist adventure, which was super fun. And then when we got to the end of that, which was a, a few months, we ran that game. When we got to the end of that, we said, well, who's going to go next? And we had this kind of question of like, well, who's going to run the next game? And we just started talking through it and said like, well, like, we don't want to saddle one of us with it, right? I said, I'm happy to do it. I love doing it, but it is, it's a lot of work, especially when you're homebrewing a lot of it. And who, who wants to take up that mantle? And I don't remember who suggested it, but somebody at some point said, what if we just rotate? What if we just trade off? And we, and we had to figure out kind of how does that work? Because as I mentioned before, one of the big problems with having a, a DM with a player involved is how do you run that player without it feeling weird, especially when it's not an NPC and it's an actual player character. These are a lot easier because you're not invested necessarily in the NPC. But if it's your character that you're planning on running in two weeks, when this, when we finish this adventure, we move on to another adventure, it's hard to, to navigate what your character does. And so we, we taught, we, we said, this is going to be a loose thing. We said the premise of this campaign is that every adventure that each DM runs as we go through it is a story that's being told. And it's being told in a tavern. We named the tavern and we put people in the tavern. And for a lot of adventures, we start our, when we, when we switch to a new DM, we start with the occupants of the tavern telling the story. And we said, don't stress about continuity. Don't stress about we left off in this city and now we're in this city. Don't worry about it. We're telling stories and we're, we're skipping the, the logistics. We're skipping some of those logistics. Now, I will say after a lot playing that for, for now over a year, we filled in those logistics, right? We, we had a kind of a blank map and we said, well, just, you just make up where these, what cities are. We had no map. And as we started running these adventures, we just added cities to the map. We, we had an adventure in this place and it's, it's called Norberg. And we put that on the map and what's around Norberg. Okay. There's a mountain and there's some forests and whatever. Great. We put that on the map. And then we go to the next adventure and we say, oh, this is, this is a city called Frist and it's in the desert. And we, so we put it on the map. We said, well, I guess this is where the desert is. And it's this sort of collaborative world building that just builds up and you get these super satisfying moments where Something that I created in the very beginning, maybe in the first adventure that I ran, I, I, there were a couple locations, there was a couple cities. And then months later, another DM is running in that same world and says, oh, this character is at this location. Or they send you a message and say, hey, meet me at this location or this NPC. I added an NPC in the first adventure that we ran that was just there. She was, a, she was an, part of an encounter where she's a shepherd and there's some wolves attacking the flock. And my players picked up that NPC and said, as many players will do, they'll say like, no, you're, you're our buddy now. Come, come with us, <laughs> join us. And she ended up being, now we are a year later, a year later. And I don't know how many hours in, like I said, we're weekly and we play for at least four hours every week. So hundreds of hours at this point of playtime. And she, that character has been with our party the entire time since, since adventure one. And we, she now just uh, maybe a few weeks ago, Another DM set it up. She gets captured. She's gone. And, <laughs> and, and it's this wonderful thing where like, I, I created this character. I put them into the world and this other DM says, well, no, we're going to use them for this. And now there's, where is she? And there's like, maybe she's, 
was she was kidnapped or would she, she disappear? What's going on? And so there's this kind of wonderful collaborative creation where I may have said the word, hey, there's this character and this is her name and she's a shepherd. And then other people add to her story, right? Other people add to what her background is and how she behaves. I, she was kind of a blank slate. I, she had a, a rough motivation of don't get eaten by wolves, but we've been playing for a year now and that NPC has been under the control of five different DMs and they each add a little bit of extra to her background or to how she behaves or how willing to take risks she is. So it's so much of it is this kind of collaborative world building, both for characters and then for the literal map. I have a map now that has, I don't know, 30 cities and rivers and mountains and lakes and, and seas and all stuff that someone just said, this is, this is the place where it goes. And, and this, you're visiting it now. It's, it is a wonderful experience. And, and I, I, I know that it wouldn't work for every group, but I was, am so pleasantly surprised that it worked out as well as it did in this kind of weird format. Uh, It sounds really fun. And I like what you said kind of at the beginning that one of the first things you did was just to say, we're not going to worry about continuity, just to make the process of doing it easier, even though you're starting to kind of work some of that in. When you're doing, like when you have one DM that has an adventure, is that like like a one shot that the adventure is? Or is it is it like a couple of sessions in a row that is yeah. encapsulates that adventure? It's pretty much up to them. It's pretty much up to the DM. I tend, so for example, I tend to run adventures that are, that have a big arc. So that, that big bad arc that I mentioned that I ran with this kind of mysterious big bad, that was, that was probably, oh, I, I, it was four adventures and each adventure was probably three or four sessions. So it's many hours of playtime that's it, it, it would be the number of sessions is probably somewhere ballpark like maybe six uh, sessions and that had an overall arc but interspersed in between that were all these other dms running things and, and doing other adventures and 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 everything happening kind of in between so i that's what i like to run i like to run things with big arcs uh, to build up to which is especially rewarding when you have other dms going kind of in between because then you can have this big build up and have like a season finale kind of equivalent of an adventure but you didn't spend every single moment focusing on this one mystery right because other dms are running other things so i have i have we've had it where we had a dm ran it was basically a one shot it was a single session and i've had where we go five or six sessions for one adventure so it varies and it's and it's up to dms just like with the kind of flexibility of the kind of logistics of the world and not worrying about the minutiae of of things we we very early on said just do whatever you want to do because that that's where you get super fun ideas. One of my favorite adventures that came out of this kind of rotating DM (laughs) setup was my brother ran an adventure that was basically the Karate Kid. And we were all Mr. Miyagi in that scenario. We encounter a a kid in a town and and it was a very short adventure. It was essentially a training montage of an adventure. And we all got to, we, we got to try to impart skills and we would roll these checks to take a skill that's on our character sheet and give it to this character and role play that out and kind of which skills do 
we choose like what does our character feel like is an important skill to pass on for this kid who's supposed to be fighting in a tournament right that's the it's, it's literally the karate kid and so that was i think was only one session it was a very quick thing but it was super fun and and like i said it's one of my favorite that came that's come out so far out of this kind of code dm system because it was different and it was weird and it and and i think that's the strength of doing a system like this is that as great as as we dms try to shake things up we have a flavor right we may not know we may not realize it but we as dms have kind of a flavor of how we run games and the kind of the tone a lot of times and you can you can deviate from that deliberately but but this was a way where like every few weeks like the flavor changes you have like m- intense mysteries or you have this kind of, kind of super fun training montage where you're just teaching a kid I'm trying to teach a kid blind fighting and uh, and how does that role play out and how do I communicate like the significance to an NPC of like well this is how you do it and and or describe it that my brother did a really great thing where he said you you make your check to try to teach him the skill and if you do a description and you give like a, a good description of how you do it, like like the Mr. Miyagi kind of wax on, wax off, right? Like what is yep. the mechanism for teaching this? He's like, I'll give you an advantage. That's what his his kind of rule was. And so we we all were like, Yeah, what's our what's our Mr. Miyagi thing? If I'm teaching blind fighting, how do I do that? And one of our players who was teaching him blind fighting literally just threw rocks at him. He had him he said, Stand on this. <laughs> Stand on this uh, tree stump or whatever, and you're going to wear a blindfold, and I'm going to throw rocks at you, and you're going to try to dodge out of the way of these rocks. It was very almost like Luke Skywalker uh, with the remote <laughs> kind of a, a training, but it was super fun, and it, and it was like the kid's like, "This is not, this does not work." And uh, but he was like, "No, you got to listen for the rock, and you can hear it before it comes, and like based on where you can hear me throwing it and all that kind of stuff." And so that 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 training montage was so fun so fun and and just a a great role-playing experience so did that does that now an npc that comes with you as well because that seems like a great way to like build your own sidekick Uh, not not to get too deep in our own lore but that character actually fell in love with the other character that was the shepherd and yeah and they have come together and separated, not romantically separated, but meaning like physically, like he's come with us on a couple things and then gone and done his own thing and, and come back together, gone, come back together, gone. And then when she gets kidnapped, he's the one, he has a sending stone. We, one of our players stole a set of sending stones to give to them so that they could communicate when we were gone, when we were traveling. And so he, as soon as she goes missing, we go, oh, we got to go find gotta go find this guy he has a sending stone for her and that was so that was the the impetus for like let's go find this guy and so yeah absolutely these creating npcs that way where they're important to the characters but they don't have to necessarily be with you at all times filling out the world with characters that you care about super rewarding just it's, it's it is a very satisfying thing to go oh this character was kidnapped and we go wait we know the guy who not only is going to be really emotionally invested in the fact that she was kidnapped, but also has a communication tool that we can maybe get in contact with her. So yeah, he's, he's, he's come back a couple times and, and adventured with us. He died at one point and he was reincarnated by one of our characters as, as another species and just a super fun NPC. And then that, that just, I'm just smiling over here, listening to you tell the story. So very engaged by this whole, the whole lore that you've built around this. What do you do 
with your yeah with your player character yeah. when you are dming i think that's the next big question yeah that is and i think that's probably the trickiest one it's probably the 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 biggest not problem it's the biggest question because in the early days of this campaign we did very much have time jumps where we'd said this is three weeks later or this is a week later or this or you have been we we open them like stories right so we say you're 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 on the road and you you're it's a hot day and you're traveling from this state from here to here and you're on the road and whatever so a lot of times in the early days of those of this campaign we would just we would find a reason for them not to be there for example my character in our very first our very first adventure he was a he was a grung artificial and he had a steel defender. And in our very first adventure, his steel defender was destroyed. And I said, well, great. I was running the next adventure. I was up next to DM. I said, "He's he, you are at this, you're in this kind of jungle area, and he's gone home. He's taken, he was kind of emotionally invested in his steel defender, and he's taken the steel defender home to bury him, right? Is I, And that's a whole separate conversation. I, I didn't... I think being able to resurrect your steel defender felt a little bit cheap to me. I I wanted it to be like a companion. And so I wanted that death to be important. So I said, he's going to go home and bury his steel defender at home and build a new steel defender. And so that was it. I just said, but I gave a description and said, this is what's happening. He's gone home. You're now in this jungle that's on the outskirts of his hometown. And, and other players have chosen to do different things. Uh, other players have chosen to have them there and then kind of move them around at key moments so that it's not distracting for other players we've had we had one where their character died the entire adventure was a kind of clue the board game clue based kind of mystery where they were dead their character had died and we had to search this mansion to figure out who killed them because in order to cast this kind of resurrection and we were very low level at the time we were like second level or something but in order to basically undo this death we had to solve the mystery we had to have the weapon that killed them we had to have like the blood of the person that killed them and things like that it was basically clue and and that was one way that you just extract your character from the adventure so they're not distracting or or so that they're not kind of overwhelming the story that became much more difficult as we got to later adventures because as we're we're kind of now on a ticking clock to where we're going to be wrapping up this campaign in the next couple months and and we've kind of scheduled that out to say like well who's going to run the finale because who's going to kind of get us to to the end point that we feel like we is the natural progression of of these characters and so because of that there's a lot more direct transitions so going from i'm running i'm dming and we end at this point and we're on this road and we're at this location to the next person picking up directly from where they left off so there, it's a little bit trickier but i think in the same way that we kind of left it flexible for our our, our dms to kind of choose what they want to do and in the same way we made it flexible for not getting bogged down by those logistics taking the things that are important and that matter but not getting stuck with them i think we as players and as dms have kind of gotten to a point where we are a little more comfortable leaving our player there and in fact in a few instances were wanted our players there because we wanted them to to be a motivator right that they're injured or they're they're captured or they're thing that kind of galvanizes the group around them so 
it it is a hard question and there's a bunch of different ways that we have done it but i think i think being able to i think knowing and trusting your players and fellow dms is the biggest is just the biggest part is is knowing that they're not going to that when they're dming they're not going to go i found this magic weapon with my character and <laughs> and and now i have a whatever a plus 3 sort of destruction so that's the biggest thing so it is a pro it it is a a question that we have to ask every time somebody dms like what what's my character doing in this time but but fortunately with this group everybody's amazing and we're all we're all in it for the story right we're all in it for the collective uh, story and so it it has not been has not been an issue for us fortunately well i like that you had multiple different options and ways that you have dealt with it i think that's a great just for people who are listening. And I think that the entire episode has been really great and a lot of actionable stuff. So as we wrap up, would you like to plug your socials and where people can find you online? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me online pretty much everywhere at who else Elliot. So that's who else Elliot.com, who else Elliot on all socials. And and you can check out more work that I'm doing with the Dungeon Society at the dungeonsociety.com. And there'll be more information up there too about the upcoming Kickstarter for Seasons of Adventure. Awesome. Thank you, Elliot, for joining with me today. This has been a blast talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.